Hello, and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. When it comes to the genre of horror, it's fair to say you have horror before Howard Philip Lovecraft, and you have horror after Lovecraft. Whatever you might think of the man or his work, his influence is undeniable, with a murderer's row of prominent horror authors, including Stephen King himself, citing Lovecraft as a direct influence. However, in part because his work fell into the public domain a long time ago, it's arguable there's been a glut of Lovecraftian works across all mediums, with most of it simply regurgitating a handful of familiar tropes. The tentacles, the cultists, the stars are right, and so on. So, while Chris and I knew we'd probably want to cover Lovecraft on the show, we decided to call this episode Beyond Lovecraft, as what really interests us is figuring out how his works can be built on in new, exciting ways, or even moved past entirely. Enter our guest, author, RPG writer and editor, and podcaster, Scott Dorward. Scott is one of three hosts, along with Matthew Sanderson and Paul Fricker, behind an excellent long-running podcast called the good friends of Jackson Elias. They mainly discuss the works of H.P. Lovecraft, tying things back into the world of role-playing games, particularly the long-running H.P. Lovecraft RPG, Call of Cthulhu. I myself am a big fan of what he describes in his Twitter bio as his Winnie the Pooh-like voice, as well as the varied and fascinating things he says with it. So, without further ado, let's go over to my chat with Scott about Lovecraft, the man, his works, the many literary echoes emanating out from both, and what the future may hold. And here we are with Scott. Hi, Scott. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much for giving us your time. It's a real treat to have you here after enjoying the podcast so much, uh, which we will, of course, link to in the show notes. So if someone who'd never heard of Howard Philip Lovecraft or his writing stumbled across this interview, what would be your elevator pitch or the man and his works? My elevator pitch, I suppose, would be that he's the father of modern horror, that pretty much, I don't want to say all 20th century horror, but the vast majority of 20th century horror owes at least some debt to Lovecraft. He represented a massive shift in what horror was. And it's a bit tricky to attribute all the change to him, but he was a figurehead of a seismic shift in what horror was during the time of the pulps, where it shifted from being this very traditional gothic horror that was rooted in the ghost story and witchcraft and you know, all those elements that we see in Victorian horror into something weirder, this melding of genres of science fiction and, and horror, and to some extent fantasy through his dreamland stories, and turn them into something that didn't have roots in traditional fears, or at least not in the kinds of fears that had been explored in horror fiction before, and that he created this new mythology, 
uh, the Kasuna mythos. Not that he called it that. That was August Erlis who came after. But he created this kind of horror that didn't rely on any kind of belief or religious faith, but was rooted more in a sense of a combination of things. I, I suppose nihilism to some extent, but also a sense of awe, of sort of religious awe in a non-religious context, the feeling of humanity being a very small thing in a very large universe, uh, there being much more frightening things than us potentially out there that we might see as gods or monsters but are just simply other things. He also tapped into a lot of other things which are perhaps a little more uncomfortable in this day and age. A lot of his stories feed upon the fear of the unknown but in some cases that is very much the fear of the other. And there's no getting around the fact that Lovecraft was a massive bigot. He was a racist. He was an anti-Semite. Uh, I mean, you know, if you can think of a form of bigotry, he probably subscribed to it. That did feed into his stories to some extent as well, in that you find representations of humanoid uh, or you know, human equivalent creatures that may be fairly thinly veiled racist allegories. But at the same time, what he did there, and, and it's an uncomfortable realization perhaps, is he sort of made his very personal fears there of the other perhaps understandable or more universal, made them relatable to people who perhaps didn't share his prejudices. And realising that some years on was quite an uncomfortable thing. But for both good and bad, he changed the face of horror, influenced you know, generations of horror writers, and I don't think horror would be anything like it is today if it weren't for him. Do you recall the story that ignited your passion for Lovecraft's work when you were young? And if so... What was it that you feel you connected with that really reached inside and put roots down in your imagination? That is actually quite a difficult question to answer because I'd read a number of Lovecraft stories before I had any idea who Lovecraft was. I'd been a horror fan since I was a kid. Um, I started reading horror stories, I guess, when I was about seven or eight and just fell in love with them. And I picked up every horror anthology I could, either at secondhand stores at church fates or through the school library and just devoured everything I could. And I'd encountered a few Lovecraft stories that made an impression on me. Some of them are perhaps ones that people would dismiss as being slight stories or unimportant stories, but they influenced me. Like um, The Evil Clergyman, that was perhaps the first one I read. And that did set off something in my, my developing brain when I was about 10 or 11. And around the same time, I read The Moon Bog and... Again, I mean, it's not one of his great stories, but there was something about that that spoke to me. 
And then, I, you know, around the same time, I read uh, The Outsider in Pickman's Model, which are much bigger stories than his canon. I guess because those weren't the first ones of his I read, they didn't make quite an impression on me. But the weird thing is that I then kind of forgot who he was. And about oh. you know, five years after that, six years after that, I got into role-playing games. First of all, Dungeons & Dragons, but then Call of Cthulhu came out. I picked up the second edition of Call of Cthulhu when it was uh, published in the UK by Games Workshop. And that got me reading Lovecraft. And I realised as I was going through all these stories, oh yeah, I've read that one before, I've read that one before, and kind of pieced together that they were all by the same person. I hadn't even connected those. That's when I really became a Lovecraft fan. I was going to actually ask you, how did you uh, fall in love with the Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game? But it sounds like it was all sort of intertwined for you. It was, yes. As I said, I started off with role-playing games when I was in my late teens. I was 17 or 18. And I first played D&D, like most people. And I decided pretty early on that... Uh, in fact, I decided probably after the first game I played that I really wanted to be on the other side of the GM screen. So I picked up Traveller because I, I was a big science fiction fan and got into that. And then, yeah, like a lot of other people in the UK, it was a boarding school at the time. I used to read White Dwarf magazine, uh, published by Games Workshop back in the day, when it was more than just a vehicle for selling Warhammer. That It, <laughs> it published stuff for AD&D, Traveller, and this new game that they were hyping up, Call of Cthulhu. And I still remember the weird experience I had of encountering my first Call of Cthulhu scenario in White Dwarf and looking at this thing and sort of thinking, okay, but, but where's the dungeon map? And yeah. realising that this was a whole different kind of gaming, that it was much more about creating a story, interacting with characters, and that it was much more abstract compared to what I'd been used to you know, in the <laughs> only six months or so I'd been gaming at that stage. Picking up the box set of that second edition was just transformative. It just changed my mind about what a role-playing game could be. And, yeah, I pretty much set a template for the next 40 years. Moving uh, back to the literature, Lovecraft was influenced by a number of earlier authors. Uh, William Hope Hodgson with House on the Borderland, mm. Robert Chambers, King in Yellow, uh, and Arthur Machen, uh, The Great God Pan. Could you... Tell us a little bit about those influences and what sets Lovecraft apart from them. Like, how did he build on them? I don't know how many of those were direct influences on Lovecraft when he started out writing. They were all influences, I think, that came up when he was already writing, who shaped and redirected his writing. His early work, I think, owes a hell of a lot more to Edgar Allan Poe. His first few stories are, are very gothic. And it wasn't until the mid-1920s that it started going in different directions. And there are certain authors you can point to and sort of say, oh, that's where Lovecraft got that from. I think the big one is actually Lord Dunsany. Dunsany, you know, his dreamer's tales, are such a huge influence on Lovecraft's own dreamland tales that 
when you go back to Dunsany, look at those and then go back to Lovecraft, it almost feels like Lovecraft is writing Dunsany pastiches. Arthur Machen, as you say, was a definite influence. You've got stories like the Dunwich Horror that Lovecraft wrote, which is, I'd say, pretty much a riposte to the great god Pan, that they basically share the same fundamental ideas of this demigod being created by the interbreeding of a human woman and this ineffable thing that we might call a god uh, creating something strange and dangerous. So, yeah, Mechem was obviously a huge influence there, and his work crops up, or at least his influence crops up, through a bunch of other Lovecraft stories, even down to Lovecraft's use of the god Nodens in a few uh, stories, which I think Lovecraft came across because of his interest in Mechem and the fact that the Roman ruin that led to our understanding of the historical god Nodens pretty much was on Macon's doorstep. So it's all linked there. William Hope Hodgson is, I'd say, a more, I don't know, a, maybe a more tangential influence. I mean, there's certainly a lot of similarities between particularly the Karnaki and the Ghostfinder stories, and like you say, the House in the Borderland, and some of Lovecraft's work. But I think unlike, say, uh, Poe, Dunsany and Macon, it's harder to point at individual Lovecraft stories and sort of say, oh, yeah, this was very much a uh, William Pope Hodgson influence here. Well, I'm curious because I'm not as up on my scholarship of his influence as I'd like to be. I know with Robert E. Howard, who I've been reading a lot about lately, you know, he, the man himself in his letters would say, Howard Lamb, he was a huge influence on me. You go back, you read Howard Lamb. Oh boy, was he. Was yeah. there anyone other than Poe that perhaps he named directly? Uh, I, the other big one, I suppose, would be out in Blackwood. Blackwood stories, The Willows and The Wendigo. I'd say in particular, were huge influences on Lovecraft. Again, because they they bring that idea of this sort of ineffable alien force from outside coming in as an intrusion upon our world and, and shaping it and having unpleasant influences without necessarily being consciously hostile. With The Willows in particular, and that's an interesting story in that it is this, I'd guess, bridge between more traditional horror or more traditional folk stories and what would become cosmic horror. Because you can look at The Willows and, and see it as being almost a classic fairy tale that you've got these intrusions of what may be fairyland coming through into our world, and it's just such a weird and alien place that we can't get our heads around it. But at the same time, you can also look at it from the Lovecraftian point of view of this being an alien dimension or something like that, which then you know raises the question of what's the difference between those anyway? Yeah, The Willows is a remarkable tale. I, I read a copy of that at the Merrill Collection because I've heard it prop up so much as this kind of bridge that you mentioned. And yeah, I completely agree. You know, I found it even going in feeling like I know what I'm in for here. By the time I was about halfway in, I went, oh, geez, these Willows are creepy. Yeah, 
I don't often get scared at horror in any form. I watch endless horror films and it's a rare film that gets under my skin and even less so with horror fiction. I love horror fiction. It's a big part of what I read. But I haven't really been scared by it since I was a kid. But I read The Willows for the first time, I guess about 25 years ago, and I found it genuinely creepy. I, it, it unsettled me. And for a story that was written in 1902 or so, I think, for it to still have that power now is incredible. And uh, actually, speaking of what maybe makes stories like this work, I'd like to move on to my next question, which is... Mm. As the man behind the Milton Keynes science fiction, fantasy, and horror writers workshop, what advice do you give when a workshop attendee says they want to write something Lovecraftian? Yeah, um, there's just such a broad definition of what Lovecraftian is that saying a story is Lovecraftian can mean all sorts of different things. But... I guess if someone were interested in, in mining that particular vein, I'd suggest that they think about, well, the cosmic horror aspects to begin with. But Lovecraft's work comes from a time before modern genres. So it's really easy to point back at it and sort of say, right, it's horror fiction. But at the same time, it isn't. These Weird Tales writers, his immediate circle, you mentioned Robert E. Howard, but Clark Ashton Smith as well, they all wrote these stories that, you know, we'd look at, uh, you know, as, as modern readers as being this mixture of, of horror and science fiction and fantasy. It's all thrown together. And fundamentally, they represent this freedom of imagination you know, I don't think they necessarily sat down and thought, you know, I'm going to try to write this particular type of story. And Lovecraft was, you know, influenced by certain philosophical and aesthetic considerations and had certain, you know, rules that he set for himself when trying to write what he considered to be the weird tale. But it was a different set of constraints than you might think about these days if you were writing genre fiction. The main rule that he set for himself was that the world in which his stories were set had to feel real in order to accentuate the weird elements when they came in. So he tried to get you know, things like geographical and scientific details right. He tried to make it feel like it was the world around him in terms of his depiction of places. You know, when he suddenly brings in an alien creature, that makes it feel all the stranger. And so I think that works. He tapped in very much into his own personal fears, as I said before, for both good and bad. So there were certain things that he was frightened of, like the sea and seafood and people who weren't like him and um but but even more specific ones like you know his childhood nightmares he was very vivid dreamer throughout his life and he had these recurring nightmares as a kid about these strange faceless winged creatures that he called night gaunts and so he brought these into his stories in the dream quest of unknown kadath 
as these hideous things that come in and serve the Lord of the Abyss and snatch up our hero Randolph Carter at some stage and take him away to the Abyss. He took all those personal considerations, but then brought in that fear of the cosmic, as I said before, that fear of humanity's insignificance in the face of the universe. And so I think it's a combination of all those things. Plus, he wrote really good monsters. I don't think it's a bad thing to focus on just how good he was there. He was good at creating monsters that were both ineffable, you know, in terms of the big godlike things like Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu and Azathoth, down to things that were comprehensible on a human scale, like the Elder Things who built the city in the Antarctic, or the great race of Yith who snatched people's bodies through time, uh, and presenting them as perhaps not wholly unsympathetic, but at the same time inhuman, weird, and disturbing. So I think there's quite a lot you can learn about the way that um, he presents monsters and use that as inspiration yourself. Well, I think that's a wonderful answer. And yeah, the, getting to the root of the author's own fears, I think, is so important because I think mm. when a lot of people um, say, oh, you know, I wrote the story, it's a bit Lovecraftian, you know, you're like, well, okay, there's going to be a fish man in it. Uh, you know, it's going to be <laughs> yes. some sort of surface uh, <laughs> element. Uh, there's going to be a sanitarium, you know, uh, and nothing wrong with any of those things, but it's a bit getting distracted by the paint uh, when maybe you should be looking at the foundations. You talk about the fishman element in particular. I mean, the Shadow of Rinsmith is obviously one of his most famous stories, and that's the one with the deep ones, the fishmen in it. It's easy to look at the Shadow of Rinsmith and think, oh, yeah, it's a horror story because it's got these semi-human fishmen and they look weird and they do horrible things. But the horror in that story is a very personal one to Lovecraft because the revelation comes at the end of the story that the narrator is actually of the same bloodline as all these creatures that he's been fearing throughout the story and that he's in the, the end of it looking at his own potential transformation and trying to choose whether to accept it. This ties in very much with Lovecraft's own personal fears about what was in his blood because both his parents had died in psychiatric hospitals and he was very worried about what that meant for him. So, yeah, I think there's a very personal psychological you know, existential horror at the heart of that that is overshadowed by the fishmen. What do you think makes for a weak Lovecraftian work, whether by the man himself or someone playing with his tool set. The weakest Lovecraftian stories I've read are the ones that most try to ape Lovecraft. Because fundamentally, Lovecraft was unique. He got away with a lot of stuff stylistically in his stories that lesser writers cannot. His stories can be viewed as being adjectival soup at times. His writing is florid and, and purple, can't write characters. But his prose is a lot more effective than it really should be. The problem is a lot of writers who then go on and try to emulate Lovecraft seize on that aspect of his writing 
and they can't pull it off. I think the worst example of this is August Derlith. Derlith oh, bless him, yeah. <laughs> Derlith is yeah. a huge figure in Lovecraftian fiction because he co-founded Arkham House Publishing Company in order to preserve Lovecraft's work in book form. So there is a huge debt in Lovecraft fandom to Derlith uh, for doing so. And he encouraged many other writers, including Ramsey Campbell, and gave Campbell his start. I think he was fundamentally a pretty awful writer. His Lovecraftian fiction in particular apes all the worst aspects of Lovecraft's work. It is just this mass of adjectives. It has these huge paragraphs which are just like this litany of Lovecraftian names to no point. He he just feels like he's got to name check every god and monster and place and book out there. He does all this without doing anything generally interesting in the story itself. So as a result, his stories feel empty and and convoluted and just messy. It's basically fanfic and not very good fanfic. And to be fair, Lovecraftian fiction is, I guess, in, in some ways, ground zero for fanfic. I mean, the Cthulhu mythos, when you look at it, is fanfic. Lovecraft, who had this circle of writers around him, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard, who he shared ideas with and, you know, who kind of co-developed the mythos with him. And then he had all these younger writers who wrote to him, he gave encouragement to, some of whom went on to do great things like Robert Block and Fritz Lieber. The mythos kind of grew out of that. It was, I guess, in some ways, like the first open source project. The problem comes when you do get writers, as I said, like those early Derlis stories. And even, I'd say to some extent, some of Ramsey Campbell's early stories, um, you know, The Inhabitant of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants, was written when he was a teenager. He, I think, was about 13 or 14 when he started writing it, and uh, it was published when he was about 16. The early stories in it are very much Lovecraft pastiches as well, and suffer a little bit from what I was talking about with Derlith. And they're still better, but it took him a little while to find his own voice as a writer, but um, not that long. I mean, it'd be from the age of about 17 or 18, he was writing stories that were spectacular. I think fundamentally, bad Lovecraftian fiction is fiction that generally tries to be Lovecraft. What do you feel is the, or at least one of the, strongest Lovecraftian works written by someone other than Lovecraft? Oh boy. The problem isn't that I can't think of anything. The problem is that I can think of too many things. I mentioned Ramsey Campbell earlier, and I think his later stuff in particular, I think, changed my mind an awful lot about what the Cthulhu Mythos could be. What Campbell did was take these concerns of the cosmic and the alien and bring them into kind of everyday working class life in northwestern England. That, I think for a start, just made them feel completely different anyway. They dealt with different concerns. They felt more dangerous, there were more sexual elements to them, and they just felt weirder. That, to me, kind of showed that the Cthulhu mythos wasn't necessarily this thing that was rooted in 1920s Massachusetts. It could be anywhere, it could be anything, it could take these rather uncomfortable forms. 
that was, as I say, a revelation. And a few years after that, I had another revelation, or rather I encountered another book that was revelatory in terms of the way it presented the mythos, in this case as comedy, but as deeply unsettling comedy. And it's a book called Resume with Monsters by William Browning Spencer, a book that was published in the 1990s. Again, it's a very sort of mundane book in its details. It's about this loser of a man who has been through unsuccessful relationships and dead-end jobs and is, is stuck in this sort of night job in a printing company and trying to patch things up with his, his old girlfriend who doesn't want anything to do with him. But the reason that he wants to try to get back into her life isn't just because he's still in love with her, but it's because he believes that the entities of the Cthulhu mythos have taken a personal interest in his life and that they're destroying his life and that uh, his girlfriend is in danger or his ex-girlfriend is in danger of all this. It's just this spiral into absurd paranoia with all these mythos trappings that is unlike anything else I've ever read. And it's a glorious book. There's a book I read a couple of years back, which, again, I don't think is desperately well-known, but is well worth looking out, called The Private Life of Elder Things, uh, that was co-written by Adrian Tchaikovsky, um, Keris MacDonald, and Adam Gauntlet. It's a collection of short stories that basically take entities and locations and ideas out of Lovecraft and reinvent them in a modern setting. And... I don't necessarily want to say humanize them, but they look at them in new light. So there's, for example, one story in there, which is a strangely sympathetic look at a Yithian that's managed to embed itself into a library in London and has ended up making human friends there. And it's this yeah, series of really unusual takes on classic tropes each story manages to make what should be a cliche into something fresh and interesting. And yeah, I think that's one of the best Lovecrafting books I've read in a long time. So thank you. That was a lovely answer. And uh, as always, we're filling our remit of making everyone's to be read <laughs> piles get even larger. So that's good. And now I'd like to get to the core idea behind this episode. Mm. It can feel like maybe Everything which can be done with Lovecraft's creatures and conceits has been done. On the other hand, the Lovecraft Country TV series mm. came out only last year. You know, Del Toro's troubled adaptation of In the Mountains of Madness seems to have had some new life breathed into it. You know, there's still new works being created. So what do you think? You know, are there still intriguing ways to expand upon Lovecraftian fiction? You know, unbroken ground yet to be explored? Or is it kind of a finished perimeter within which we play but cannot push against? I think the themes of Lovecraftian fiction are so universal that people will always find ways of reinventing them. As a result, the genre can be kept fresh. Fundamentally, there are no new ideas, and at this stage, you know, any genre you can think of is so well developed that you could make the argument that it's mined out. But yet, people will always find new approaches. And I don't think Lovecraftian fiction is any different there. One of the big things that's happened in recent years, and you touched upon Lovecraft Country there, obviously that started off with the novel by Matt Ruff, and that was part of, I think, a little movement that grew up, what, seven or eight years ago, 
people were using Lovecraftian fiction basically as a way of critiquing Lovecraft and the attitudes of the pulp era. Lovecrafting fiction became a very useful tool to do that because, you know, there were things like, you know, The, the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, um, Ruth Anna Emerus's, uh The Litany of Earth and Wintertide. I guess, you know, possibly even uh, Kirsch Johnson's you know, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, where there were all these writers bringing their personal experiences as perhaps the kind of person Lovecraft wouldn't have liked because of who they were, and using that as a way of reflecting back on Lovecraft and sort of saying, well, no, you know, we can play with these ideas as well. We can use them to discuss our experiences. That turned them into something fresh. And I thought that was a very exciting, you know, little ripple that came out of Lovecraftian fiction. But just in general, cultural attitudes change, people change over the years. And with each generation of writers that come out, there are people addressing different concerns and different experiences, bringing those to their fiction. And the Lovecraftian fiction that comes out today is, at its core, almost nothing like what we saw a hundred years ago when Lovecraft and his immediate circle were writing. There are, yes, you know, those themes that are going through them, but they feel absolutely fresh because they deal with contemporary concerns. I would even argue that the Lovecraftian fiction that's coming out today is generally better than the Lovecraftian fiction you know, I grew up with, certainly, and that came out of the first couple of generations that followed Lovecraft. Maybe I'm off base here, but I feel that there's been much more of a focus on trying to develop kind of a more literary kind of horror. It's always been there. Say in the 1980s, when I was a young horror fan, most of the horror that came out then was very pulpy and, and lurid. And what's coming out now feels more polished. It feels like it's dealing with different concerns. And as a result, I think what we're seeing in terms of Lovecraftian fiction today is a very different beast than what we've seen before. That it, I, I don't know, it feels more, oh God, this is going to sound awful, but it feels more grown up. Doesn't sound awful to me at all. I think you've got a point. And it, it actually brings me to what I was getting to, which is, do you wonder sometimes if maybe instead of saying Lovecrafting, we should just go with something divorced from the man mm. like cosmic horror? Maybe it's time for the term to change, or would that be cutting out uh, the history of it? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky one. There obviously have in recent years been a lot of people who've challenged Lovecraft's place within the canon, you know, largely because of who he was as a person. And I think that's absolutely fine to do. He was a horrible human being, and we shouldn't whitewash that. As far as not describing that kind of fiction as Lovecraftian, I can absolutely see an argument for it. At the same time, his influence is just so strong. And it's not just the themes of his work and the ideas and the specific creations people are built upon, but it is the man himself. Because, you know, for all his bigotry and hatred, he was also a fantastically nurturing influence within the literary community. You know, he, not just through his work, but as a person, shaped a generation of writers, and that ripples through to the modern day as well. So it is difficult to divorce that from 
the genre. And like I say, I can see the argument for doing this. I just think it's perhaps a difficult thing to do. In a similar vein to my previous question, is there anything left to be said about Howard Philip Lovecraft uh, and his bigotry? I don't think there's necessarily anything new to be said. But on the other hand, I think it is still worth having the conversation. I keep going back to a panel I did at a book launch some time back. It was for the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition role-playing game. And there was an audience member who chimed in with the question about Lovecraft's bigotry and sort of how we address that in the game. What stuck with me about it was she said that because she played the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, she'd gone off and read some of Lovecraft's fiction. And one of the first stories she read was Herbert West Reanimator. And she was unprepared for some of the racism in there. And that did remind me that, yeah, all right, in situations like this where we're talking about Lovecraft specifically, yeah, everyone knows he's a racist and that his work is tainted with that. But there are always new people who are coming to his work who perhaps haven't heard all this before. The woman who was asking the question in this panel did get me thinking that it is worth discussing Lovecraft racism whenever possible. And there will always be people, particularly online, who kick back against it and say, oh, you know, this again, or he was a, just a product of his time, or any one of a countless number of comebacks to it. It is worth just keeping that conversation alive so that people don't get blindsided, so that people can make informed decisions about whether or not they want to read his work. The thing that really registered with me was, you know, a few years later, when I was thinking about the fact that because of the name of the role-playing game, a lot of people who come to Lovecraft, maybe as their first story, read The Call of Cthulhu. And the middle section of that is horrifically racist. If you're not prepared for that, wow. Certainly where you've got collections of his that come out now and anthologies, I think it's quite common to address Lovecraft's racism. And it's certainly in the Call of Cthulhu RPG that's addressed there as well. There is a small but alarming subset of Lovecraft fandom for whom his bigotry is a feature, not a bug who will might not only jump in to defend him and his racism at every point, but actually sort of imply what a good thing it was at times. I don't want to just see Lovecraft fall into the hands of white supremacists and other bigots. I think there's enough there in his work that is redeemable, that has universal themes, that everyone can enjoy as long as they're prepared for it. I don't want him just to become a white supremacist icon. Uh, yeah, we would hate for them to claim him, uh, essentially, and uh, then we would lose all the literary merit, perhaps, uh, or lose a lot of it. Uh, so moving on to something only marginally less uncomfortable, Lovecraft's <laughs> work, even the man himself, it seems, is pretty devoid of sex and romance. Could a really great cosmic horror story focused on sex and or romance be a way to build on the relatively asexual world of Lovecraft? Earlier, you did mention Ramsey Campbell, I think, mm, yes. uh, as someone who put elements of sex into his Lovecraftian tales. Uh, would there be anything more you want to say about him or others you'd like to bring up? 
Um, I'd say Caitlin Arkeanen in recent years has done a fair bit of that. Uh, maybe not to the extent Campbell does. Not in terms of sort of writing overtly sexual stories, but just in terms of ones that are rooted more in the general human experience, including love and romance. I think it's fair to say that a lot of modern writers have brought those more human elements in. If you want to be crass about it, there have been a number of collections of Lovecraftian erotica that have come out. There you go. So there are definitely writers that Coming back that. to Alan Moore, actually. Yeah. Moore is a difficult figure in that. I am a huge Alan Moore fan, but his Lovecraftian comics do lean uncomfortably into rape as a plot device, which always makes me a bit hesitant to recommend them to people. At the same time, I think, you know, Providence in particular is a masterpiece. In terms of just general love and romance and sexuality in the healthy form, I can't think of any particular writer I point at, but those themes, as I say, have cropped up an, an awful lot in, in modern mythos fiction, to the extent where I think they've become so generally universal that I can't necessarily point at any particular writer. For example, there was a John Langan story that I read in one of his collections, I think in Sapphira, that was a mythos story that had those very sort of human relationship roots in it. Would you say having that element in a Lovecraftian story, which generally deals in themes of insignificance, is it antithetical or can it be built in there without spoiling the broth or whatever? Well, I think having it there serves two purposes. One is what I talked about before with Lovecraft wanting to root his stories in the everyday. So I mean, that is an everyday part of most people's existence. So having that in there you know, makes it feel more real. So when you bring the horror in, it feels more grounded. But also, I think as a counterpoint or something there to be challenged, a lot of horror takes the form of here is the status quo, here is something that's going to come in and smash the status quo up in upsetting and dangerous ways. And if that status quo is happy person, happy relationship, or whatever, and then you have something really creepy that comes in that messes all that up and changes it, then I think that is a very powerful form of horror and a fairly universal one. All right. So as someone who's been neck deep in Lovecraftian fiction discussion for some time now, <laughs> what do you think Lovecraft himself might have gone on to do had he lived longer? Are there any clues you've come across in his voluminous correspondence or elsewhere <laughs> of ways he was looking to build on what he'd done so far? The only specific I can remember is that he was planning a sequel to At the Mountains of Madness that might have taken things in interesting directions and expanded different aspects of the mythos. But beyond that, I don't know. It's, I almost wonder what Lovecraft's legacy would have been if he'd survived, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, he was still fairly active in writing all this stuff until at least a couple of years before his death. His, I think, great period of writing where he, all his really important and influential stories came out was towards the end of his life in the last 10 years of his writing career. If he'd had more time, then yes, I mean, there might have been some fantastic stuff that had come out of that. From his correspondence and from you know, memoirs left by people who knew him, it sounded like 
a lot of his bigotry was shifting and changing towards the end of his life, that he was renouncing a lot of his racism towards the end. Because I think like a lot of people, he'd been drawn into the pseudoscientific race theory that was popular in the early 20th century. And had bought into a lot of that, saw himself as being a scientific rationalist. And so, you know, of course, all this stuff was right because, you know, it was science, damn it. And then by the time the 1930s came around, the mid-1930s, towards the end of his life, it does seem like he was re-evaluating a lot of that and realising that it was nonsense. It was weird. He seemed to be accepting of people of different races, except he still hated black people. I'm not saying he could have been fully redeemed, but he was evolving. So if that had crept into his work as well, I don't know, maybe we'd remember him as a person a lot more warmly now if he lived for another 20, 30 years. Well, that's interesting, yeah. And uh, forgive me if I sound like the fanboy who's like, oh, you found a, a little note of another Spider-Man story by Stan Lee or whatever. But like, how much do you remember about that sequel to uh, in Mountains of Madness? Because oh, boy, gosh. that just made my eyebrows perk up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't remember the details, unfortunately. I know that there was a letter in which he made reference to it. And because he had that weird scene towards the end of At the Mountain's Madness, where you've got the plane that's flying away from the Elder Thing city in the Antarctic, and they spot something, or Danforth, I think it is, spots something weird, this lighthouse-type thing, that then sort of beams all this alien information into his head, and he rattles off all these strange things that he's just intuited or understood by exposure to this. And in Lovecraft's correspondence, apparently he was going to build on a lot of those things and, you know, develop them into something more. But I can't really remember the specifics beyond that. All right, Scott. Well, this has been a lovely conversation, as I figured it would be. Where can people find you online? What are you working on at the moment? And is there anything else you'd like to make listeners aware of? Well, the main thing that I direct the audience to is the podcast which I do with my good friends Paul Fricker and Matt Sanderson, which is called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Now, all three of us have worked on the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and a number of supplements as well as other RPGs. And so that is obviously the main focus of the podcast, but we talk about weird fiction, we talk about horror films, we talk about other RPGs. Basically, if it's horror and it influences our gaming lives, then we'll talk about it. And that means that we do end up talking about an awful lot of classic horror fiction and weird fiction. So, you know, we've talked about Robbie Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and Carl Edward Wagner and Robert Eggman and all sorts of interesting horror writers. For people who are interested in the gaming side of things, I also do another couple of podcasts, or at least I, I appear on a, another couple of podcasts, uh, which are actual play podcasts of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. I've run a lot of games for the How We Roll podcast. The main thing I'm running for them at the moment is a Pulp Cthulhu campaign called The Two-Headed Serpent, which I co-wrote with Paul and Matt which is a sort of two-fisted pulp action with snake people. And then <laughs> I've also run a number of one-shots and an ongoing short campaign for the Eight Slade Nobody podcast. Their main arc, I'm not on. That's the Down Darker Trails Wild West game that they do. But yes, I do a number of side projects with them as well. 
So if you're interested in hearing what Lovecraft in Gainey sounds like, then yeah, give those a listen. Well, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes to make it even easier for people to find you. This has been a great Well, time. thank you very much for having me. That's be lovely. Cheers. Take care. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.